Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show, the big show, the the most important and critically acclaimed podcast that is recorded in our car, and here we are. It's a beautiful day, and we're going to have a mystery show. I'm what's, mystified. How about you? What's a mystery? Well, you actually, you guys know what it's about because You've you saw the, the title. title for the show. She, however, does not. And I love springing mystery shows on her. It's not like I just make this stuff up or anything. Oh, wait. You you won't make this stuff up. <laughs> uh, because our mystery show today involves two separate events that have happened to us this weekend. And we may expand upon it a little bit more after that. There, there are actually three, um, three events that happened this weekend. There, we expanded already. See? All right, we'll go with three, okay? Now... On the way home through Iowa, we stopped at our regional grocery store. And by that, I mean, it's a chain that's in this region. Every region has their own chains. I mean, some some places have the Piggly Wigglies. So, uh, Schnooks is the big chain in St. Louis. Osco Jewel is Chicago. Uh, you know, you know your own chains wherever they are. In this part of the Midwest, in Iowa and the major parts of the of the area around surrounding Iowa, our major chain is Hy-Vee. So we just stopped at Hy-Vee on the way home because the best dairy in the world, Anderson Erickson, which is in Des Moines, makes old-fashioned cottage cheese. That's why we stopped. Unfortunately, they cut back their delivery amount, and they're no longer delivering the into Missouri after I got hooked on the stuff. So every time I'm, I'm on my way home, we save a little cooler space and I buy three or four um, jars of cottage cheese, whatever you call them, uh, containers of cottage cheese, old-fashioned. Oh, mm, if you like cottage cheese, this is it's by, by far the best, in my opinion. She doesn't actually like it, but... <laughs> I just don't have a lot of opinions about it. <sighs> anyway... So we're by anyway, we got these four these four containers of cottage cheese. They're the the normal size. They're not the little short ones, they're the normal size. And the checkout person is bagging them up. And she puts the four she's getting ready to to put the fourth twenty four ounce package. Was it twenty four ounces? I, I think, think they're quartz. Hmm? Quartz, I think. Yeah. Uh put the uh putting the fourth one into a bag and she looks at spice and says, that's not going to be too heavy. Is it? Spice doesn't laugh. Really? Oh, we were, I mean, I just, I looked at her and she looked at me and it was all we could do. No, it's, I'll be all right. Thanks. (laughs) To not burst out in laughter. (laughs) Okay. So Yeah. Now, here's the deal. In all seriousness, this is going to sound sexist, but she would not have asked me that question. She would not have asked me that question. And sizest. He's I, I'm a big guy. More than I mean, twice my size. I mean, I'm a big guy. Four quarts of cottage cheese, I would hope. <laughs> now, she's, she's a five foot four slim um, woman who is not, you know, like 20 but still four 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 packages of cottage cheese but i know the truth here 
the truth is there are a lot of women who don't want to carry that much weight, especially women her age that don't want to carry that much weight in their grocery bags. I see this all the time when I go to the grocery store. She doesn't because I do the grocery shopping. Um, what I see is all the time in the grocery store is, is you know, a person putting a uh, not very, very heavy amount of groceries on it, and the woman will ask, can you, can you not put any more than that? Those bags, I have to carry them in. And, yeah. So, Houston, we have a problem. I'm more of a go-to-farm-and-home, and they ask me if, they would like me to have a guy carry my 40 pounds of compost out to the car. I'm like, no, I got it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. No so big deal. Why is this a prepping moment? Because so many people can't do something as, or don't admit, or don't want to do something as physically difficult as carrying four packages of cottage cheese into the house or walking all the way across a parking lot or yeah there is the there has become almost a religion if you will of ease and uh, comfort of not exerting oneself like it's an end in itself. Now, I'm, I can certainly, I am not one who wants to go back to the good old days when we did everything by hand. Because I've done some of those jobs by hand and it gets really old after a while. And I don't ever want to have to wash clothes in a hand ring washing machine. I had to do it once as a kid. It's a terrible job. Thank you for my machine. But there comes a point where you just have to use your body and keep you capable of doing things and it's not just as you get older and as life takes over and you have less and less apparent free time and i will come back and say apparent free time you have less and less apparent free time that's one of the things that you just can't really let get too far out of hand especially when you're over 50 because i find it's once it goes away after 50, it's a much longer road to get it back. It goes away more quickly, and it comes back a lot more slowly than it did when I was in my 20s. And frankly, especially when you're a woman, because weight-bearing exercises in postmenopausal women are really, really important. Scientific and, sidebar. Yeah, well, this is... Not even a sidebar. Go for yeah. it. Estrogen helps encourage your body to put calcium from the blood into the bones to help keep the bones strong. Testosterone does it that job even better. So guys tend to have a lot more massive bones for the amount of work they've been given because they've had all this testosterone around telling their bones to store a bunch of calcium and get really strong. Uh, premenopausal women have some of that effect from estrogen. But one... A woman hits menopause or perimenopause and her estrogen levels start tanking. She will often lose a whole bunch of bone mass in the year or two right around menopause because of the loss of the estrogen. 
And that's something I know is a concern for me for medical issues I'm not going to go into here. I knew that was going to be a problem. So I lift weights twice a week. I don't enjoy lifting weights at the gym, never have. But I enjoy walking upright. And I enjoy being able to do the things I want to do. I enjoy not breaking myself every time I try and do something physical. And that just plain requires maintenance. So I consider it spice maintenance work, and I put it on my schedule and get it done. This morning, she's up in the hotel room. What is she doing? She's got out her resistance bands. What is she doing? She's doing her resistance. Now, yesterday, we went, we, we did some hiking yesterday, if you want to call that hiking. Um, and about 12,000 steps, something like that. Yeah. It's right, but that is nothing just out of yeah. That's nothing out of the ordinary, right? Think about it: twelve thousand steps, and that's nothing out of the ordinary. This is the kind of physical activity that people who, in a in an emergency situation, think they're going to actually be, you know, physical. Well, there it is, and we we did twelve thousand steps, and much of it was in a hundred and four degree heat. About it on an active day at the place, it's closer to twenty thousand. Just I have a Fitbit because I'm interested in physiology. It, it's a toy. I like to uh, keep track of physiological things because that's kind of my groove. So he bought it for me for a toy. So I happen to know these things. And it runs about 20,000 steps a day when I'm out at the place working for several hours during the day. So it's not like it's that much physical labor. It's just people get surprisingly little. If they don't go out of their way, and they use whatever modern conveniences are easy to hand. Okay, so that was just one of the things we wanted to bring up. When this is a sign that when when we see this as societal thing, where where people are really actually worried about the weight of uh, forty eight, four pounds, five pounds is too heavy to carry in. Really. This is a concern of mine, especially for women, because women tend to, a lot of women tend to just shy away from anything weight-bearing, when in and fact, they're the ones that need to be doing it more than anybody. And they're a lot more likely to break an ankle if they slip a little bit when they're walking or break a hip, uh, a lot more likely to break bones when they fall. Uh, with guys, a lot of times it's more straining the back when they try and do any heavy work. If they don't get a lot of physical exercise, they'll pull their back out and do something. All right. There's point one. Now, point two comes in from me. This is a me thing. I am infected. I hate to say it, but I'm infected. I have an infection going on. Okay. I've had fever. Not too bad, but fever. I've had some some symptoms, and so I went and see the saw the doc the day before we left on a, a three day weekend, and we play hard on our three three weekends. <laughs> we we play hard, okay, um, and it's already paid for. It's already planned. I go to the doc Thursday, I think it was. Yeah, Thursday. Yeah, and. Get diagnosed, and she's she's like, you have an infection. I mean, we, we run the culture, and you're infected. It's kind of the point where you need to take a shot in the tushy. 
So I got the shot in the tushy. It was actually my hip, but yeah. Anyway, get the shot in the, the tushy. And of course, I was worried about the very, the two most important things. Okay. I showered. Yes. Clean underwear. Yes. Okay. I'm good. <laughs> so, so anyway, you know, but I get the shot. They give me pills. And she said, well, these are, these are pretty mellow. They're sulfur pills. And I'm not going to go into which ones they are, but they're sulfur pills. Sulfur. Methoxazole. Hmm? Sulfur methoxazole. Okay. She knows what it is. And it does have one significant side effect for me and anybody who takes it. But it's more significant for me than a lot of people because I don't generally burn in the sun. Okay? Photosensitivity. I have a very dark skin, not quite Mediterranean, but uh, I've got, well, I've, I've got some Native American in me and I've got some some uh, Mediterranean French in me, in my ancestry. So I'm a dark, dark hair, well, until it went gray. <laughs> dark hair, dark skin, for skin that gets exposed to the sun. My Under my shirt where it doesn't get exposed, it's pretty white. But once it gets exposed, it gets pretty dark. So sunburn is something that really doesn't affect me much normally. But we're out in South Dakota, and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. And it's 100 degrees, which just is the temperature. That doesn't really have that much to do with the... But, man, it I was, I was in the house of pain. So we had to do the slather. I had to slather on sunscreen. Sunscreen's a great idea, but we hate it. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about sunscreen. I had some in my bug out bag. Has got some, and uh, my little side side bag I take hiking has some too. Because when you need it, you really do need it. Even though I hate it, it's better than getting roasted and blistered. So I had some on hand and slathered them up. And I felt I felt the sensitivity a lot. I could feel the heat a lot. The the sun part of the heat. Well, it was in the shade. It didn't really matter how hot it was. But when I was in the shade, I was okay. But anytime I stepped out of the sun, it felt like it felt like I was getting radiated. You were getting irradiated, and it was really uncomfortable. But the sunscreen it helped a little as far as the feeling goes. But I'm not burned. So, as much as we hate suntan lotion, sunscreen, whatever they call it, sunscreen. Having some in the prepping bag was a big deal. Now, she didn't use any of it. I've been out a lot already. She's been year. out a lot. so And her skin is not dainty. She is not a, uh, she's not one of these people that burn. At I'm the, not an ivory flower. She's not redhead, for one thing. Redheads, I feel for you. There's no particular rule about how easily gray-haired people burn, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, Red hairs, I feel for you. I really do. Because, I mean... But do you have any in your bug out bag? Yes, I do. Because if you're... I was asking Prepperland oh. oh, out sorry. there. Yes, I do. I, absolutely. <laughs> because if you are going to be out for large portions of the day and you don't do that on a regular basis, you really don't want to burn yourself to a crisp the first day, be unable to sleep, 
sleeping in the heat is a million times worse when you have a serious sunburn. If it's a really bad sunburn, you can get even more, you can get seriously ill with it, for one thing. And then if it's an emergency situation, you may not be able to stay in cover the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. So it becomes a lot more important not to do yourself damage. All right, here's the kicker on the whole deal. A lot of people will get the sunscreen, they'll go in there and they'll get the little SPS 10 or 20 or whatever. Get the big dog. If you're going to put it in your in your bag, get the big dog. Get the 50, the 100, whatever the big dog is. Pay up for the sport, too. Water resistant. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, oh, go water resistant. One Absolutely. of the reasons I don't like wearing sunscreen is because when they say water resistant, they're big, fat liars. Put it on your forehead, go for a bike ride, sweat starts running, the stuff runs into your eyes. You absolutely know that it's been, you're sweating it off and it's running into your eyes and it's stinging like an SOB. Mm-hmm. So, if it's a sport type, it is slower to wash off, but it's still going to sweat off. And if it's 50, most people don't get the listed protection because they don't put on as much as the people who do the ratings put on when they test the rating amounts. Uh, Salty would have a fit if I tried to put as much on him as I'm supposed to put on him to get yes. the listed rating. I, I so I buy it. 50 and he gets 25 because that's how much he'll tolerate having on him. I admit, I don't actually put it on myself. She puts it on me because I'm a wimp. <laughs> And I whine a lot while it's going on, too. I yeah, whine. I'd rather just sit there and pout while I put the stuff. <laughs> I whine. <laughs> but it's, it's better than burning. So, yeah, actually, they, they make a kind that is the kind that surfers use. That's the kind we use. Swimmers and surfers. Really, it's not the people sitting at the beach, but actual swimmers use. And you still have to put it on fairly frequently if you want good protection from it, but it beats not having any on, by a long ways. That was part one of our thing. Part two is I'm—I admit it. I was kind of—I was off my feed this weekend. I wasn't feeling all that good. But I'm not gonna—I'm gonna press on. I mean, you're talking to a man who who walked a mile and a half in the broiling heat to take a picture each way to take a picture on a broken foot. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because with one foot t- was broken and the other foot the other had, had a, had a torn problem. meniscus. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I could barely get out of the car, but I still walked that because the, we were there and the light was right. We'd gone more than a thousand miles to, to get to this really cool place. <laughs> and the knee surgery. And it was right there, just another mile and a half down. And when we scheduled the, the trip, it was the knee surgery should have been done six months ahead of time, but delays and stuff like that and then i was compensating so much i broke my foot i broke a bone in my foot trying to compensate and it had not been diagnosed yet so that's the kind of so yesterday it was warm i mean pretty warm and i've got this i've got our little trip planned out and i know i'm going we're going to here and i know we're going to there and i know we we were uh, she brought along uh, a pair of skates so she could do her uh some outdoor skating, if we had the opportunity. So I always like to try and let her do a little of that, because she likes to just skate on trails and stuff like that. So it was hot. But um, I forget what we did first thing in the morning. Oh, yeah, we went up and, and, and we walked around, and we'd walked about six, 7,000 steps. 
more than five anyway. About three miles. Yeah, about three miles in what was then 90 degree heat or so. And then, so we're coming back and, and I stopped at this town because I knew I had a trail. I'd already pre, pre-planned all this out. I'm a, like a trip prepper, like he, extremely. I know everything I want to see within 10 does. states of here. I've already got every single trip planned. So I said, okay, here's the trail. I don't know exactly where it goes. And I don't know, well, I knew where one end of it was. So I drew over to, to about the middle, and then so she popped on her skates. And, you know, it's like 97, 98 at this point in time. She puts on her skates. She goes for a skate. And, you know, I know it's not a very long trail, so I'm just going to drive around town, take a look at the place, and come back and pick her up. So, you know, skates for what? Half hour? Maybe at the most? Maybe. Maybe not even that. Eh, about, say, a half an hour. Turned out to be a short trail. But we knew it was short. At least yeah. I knew it was short. Um, and so she hops back in. No big deal, right? Why? Because she's fit enough to do this. She knew her limits. It didn't bother her. This is because she's heat adapted. Because she's been working in the heat. This is because she's fit. Because she's been working in the gym. Working on the bike. Working on... On skates, working on all kinds of things. It didn't just happen. And I had plenty of water with me because I know that water's going to come out. You got to put water back in. And I know how to be careful about it. If you're not used to being careful about it, you will mostly underdrink when you're in that kind of weather. Right. And especially if you're like us from the from Missouri, where 100 degrees always, mean, always means 98 percent humidity as well which yeah is i had no idea it was over 100 we were out west when we were i mean in south dakota and the, the humidity was 50 60 percent and it was no so anyway we did that no problem she got back in the car we're like okay we're gonna head on over to pipestone national monument because i wanted to yeah, I, it was a surprise. We love to go to national monuments and stuff like that. She'd never been never there. Never been to that one. So I'm like, okay, we'll knock out Pipestone. So we go over there. And they've got a, a little loop trail. And I'm going to take the camera out there. And I forgot there was a... I love to take waterfall pictures. I forgot there was a waterfall. It's one of the reasons planning it. I knew it was there. But then we got up there, and I'm like, oh, there's a waterfall. And I didn't bring my tripod. Dang. Now, it was, I'm, again, I'm under the weather a little bit. And it was hot. It was over 100. We're up to 104 now. It was over 100. And it was hot. We're out there walking on a concrete path. And we're walking... Um, we're watching traffic for just yeah, a moment. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm having to watch traffic here. Okay, that person's turning. We're good. So we're walking. See a short grass prairie there. See a tall grass prairie there. It's not trees, just prairie. We're walking about half a mile-ish, more or less. We get up to some, some rocks. And I'm starting to just feel that heat again because I'm, like, burning <laughs> again. So I get under some shade and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna wait here. You go play in the rocks. Um, 
and we'll talk about Pipestone just briefly as our aside when we get done with the story, if I remember. And so she goes on up the hill and, and stuff like that. And I ask her how far the waterfall is, and when she comes back, she says, oh, yeah, it's about that, yeah, about the same distance on up the trail is what we, and uh, why, is it worth it? She says, yeah, yeah kind of. It's a pretty nice waterfall for the middle of the But I know I don't have my tripod. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well, and she, I'll go get your tripod. Are you sure? I'll go get your tripod. You go on up there. So I walk on up the trail, climb up this little cliff thing, which, don't trust me, it's not as hard as I just made it sound. <laughs> but it did go up the, the cliff. I mean, it was a trail that led up the, but it, it's like you could almost do it in a wheelchair. Not quite that accessible, but pretty close. And uh, so I get over there, and I walk down to where I hear the water rushing, and psychologically, just the rushing water sounded so cool. And I come around the corner and down the few steps, and there's the waterfall. And it's a 20-foot waterfall. It's probably 15 feet wide. And they'd been having a lot of rain, so the, so the, the stream was flowing pretty good. Good volume. And it was like 30 degrees cooler there. Because the misting of the uh, water hitting after the 20-foot drop, moving pretty fast, it, it was a natural misting action, and as you... Yeah, it was like, all that, uh, it was, it's like standing one of those misting it, it machines. It sucks the heat energy out of the air. And it's just like, oh. I literally in the said. shade because all the trees, like all oh, that moisture it cooks up. Yeah. Well, she's running. I didn't know she was running. She ran back to the car. 104 degrees. She ran back to the car. And she ran back to where I was. And I was surprised it didn't take her nearly as, took her about a fifth of the time as it took me. <laughs> and, and she's like, I'm like, oh, okay. And she, we set up the tripod and we're, we're considering, you know, living there the rest of our lives, maybe dying there. <laughs> Lovely spot. Oh, it was nice. It was nice. And I, I can see why the Native Americans... Think of it as a sacred place. It's just so beautiful. It felt pretty magical to me, too, to be honest Really, yes, it was. And I mean that in a non-literal kind of way. Yeah, but. in a non, yeah. So, anyway, heat adaptation. I am not been out in the heat as much. Of course, I was not feeling well. And he's, he's his job keeps him indoors more during the middle of the day than mine does in spring. But even still, I was noticing by the time we got back, and it, it's a much cooler walk back because it's down by, it's by this, this... Follow the stream down. Follow the stream and under under trees and stuff like that. But I was already, by the time we got back, I was even starting to feel more adapted. Even though it's still, every bit is hot. And today, I walk outside, even after just being outside a couple of days, and spending a lot of time outside, today... It just doesn't seem nearly as hot outside. It's I'm looking at the car temperature. It reads 95 right now, which is not a cold a day. It was fine. But it's fine, yeah. It's no big deal. So heat adaptation can doesn't really take all that long, but you just got to watch it while you're doing it. 
to get it fully physiologically adapted takes something like a week. But because I can, you actually yeah. train your sweat glands and your kidneys and your things to do a better job of saving your salt. And you actually start keeping more body water. You keep more blood volume so you can lose more by sweating before you start to miss it. And there are some other physiological adaptations too, but they are real things. And they make a serious difference to how much heat exposure you can tolerate before you get heat stroke or heat exhaustion. And those are, can be killer, guys. Yeah. The other, another thing to consider is water. Make sure you have plenty of it. Just don't, don't go out and things like this without having plenty of water and drink a ton of water. We both, back in the day when we were kids or younger, we both detasseled corn. It's a brutal job. And one of the things they do to keep the kids working is limit the amount of water. At least the company we worked for. We didn't work for them at the same time, but it was the same company. And they're not my recommended brand of seed corn. For those of you who probably don't know what the heck you're talking about, to make seed corn, uh, they probably improved the machines by now, but how you did it was you need to control which plants have... Some plants need tassels on them, the top little spray, and some plants don't, so you can control the breeding of the plants. And the only way to do it completely effectively is to have human hands go there and make sure the little spray at the top, the tassel, is pulled out of the plants in the rows that are supposed to be the female plants of the cross. So you do it in usually the first week of July or so. First, second week of July, last week of June. Uh, you're in place where there's no air because by then the corn plants are about you know five to six foot tall. It's warm. It's and you got to wear full sleeves and uh to keep from pants getting shredded. Because the edges of the leaves are sharp and they'll cut you otherwise. So you're there full full sleeves and full pants and, and a hat. Gloves. Yeah. Hats. It's warm. I'm I'm just sitting here chuckling. What do you mean explain detasseling corn? What do you mean? Everybody knows what detasseling no, corn is. No, not everybody knows what can visualize the the fun that is detasseling corn. It is the second putting hottest. up square hay bales. Yeah, I was gonna say barn. it's the Whoop. second hottest job on the planet. <laughs> One hundred and twenty Put, degrees. Yeah, putting up that, square so ba- hay bales into the top of a hay shed—that is the single hottest job imaginable. You know, oh, brutal. hottest job I've ever done. Brutal, brutal job. Anyway, but so. it was fine because we were adapted to it, and we knew how to take enough water and drink enough water and. So the kicker of the story is we get back to our hotel, and there's a a really uh, attractive young lady, probably 23, 24 years old, back behind the counter, and she said, well, what did you do? I said, oh, we went out to here and do a little hiking, and she's like, in this heat? I'm like, well, yeah, it's, it's pretty warm, but she said, I could never do that. I could never do that. She's a fairly fit-looking young lady, and it, I, it just struck me that so much of what we think we could never do is mental. And sure, lack of training. Sure she could do that. Absolutely she could do that. It wasn't that hard. You know? But she was, con- I'm, she was convinced she could never do that. Just 
beside the point. Okay, my last point. You w- will be able to do those kinds of things, but you have to... Right, you have to... Have to know start... how to do them and adapt to them. You have to start chewing that elephant one bite at a time. Yeah. The last one. I saw a young lady at the same hotel. Almost as if Salty's eyes are drawn to young ladies. Well, I mean, she was in the <laughs> she was in the elevator with us. Okay, it's a small elevator. You can can. There were three of us. <laughs> kind of. I mean, yeah. You've seen me before, so okay. Well, I mean, I wasn't. I wasn't even. We're good. I wasn't even paying any attention to the fact that it was just a, an example of my point. Yep. Which she was texting on her phone. And throughout the entire time we were in the same breakfasting room, checking out, loading our car, you know, that kind of stuff. Throughout that entire time, she was on her phone. The entire time. 35 or 40 minutes without a break. And the thing is, how many of you out there listening to this say, so? So what? So my prepping point. People who become that dependent upon instant communications really need to... to <laughs> they will have self-sufficiency issues when that is not available to them. Thank you. I couldn't put They it will in. have psychological problems when that is not available to them. This is something that needs to be prepped for. If there's a major phone outage, I mean, it will be catastrophic to some people. I kid you not. I remember we've been, we we go to a cave and we were not talking about, you know, going out there spelunking ourselves. We're talking like Mammoth Cave, you know, National Park kind of cave. Mark Twain Cave, Bridal Cave, Merrimack Caverns, Carlsbad, doesn't matter. Enjoy the ball. <laughs> yeah, we've been to all of them. Um, but the minute you get underground, there's no cell phone service. And it's it's amazing. You're in a little tour group, and you watch these people. And you'll be walking along, and you turn around, and three or four people will be checking to see if the service is, if there's service yet. And some of these caves, you're 600 feet underground. You're not going to have service. Pro tip, no, no service. But they keep checking their phones. They keep checking their phones out of habit. Okay? If you have somebody like this in your family, you need to come up with a way to prep for this. This is going to be a problem. This is something I see as a problem. This is something I see as a problem anyway. I'm very, very concerned about the fact that uh, people have are losing the ability to be self-sufficient and that parents are losing the ability to let go. And cell phones are major enablers. On both sides of that uh, equation. On both sides of that, yeah, absolutely. You know, your parents, look, I'm, I'm an old curmudgeon. I admit it. I'm a curmudgeon. I don't like cell phones. I don't. I carry a cell phone because I like to listen to audiobooks, and that's ninety nine percent of what my my phone is. My phone, I Google things and I listen to audiobooks. And other than that, I don't use it. Okay, and I only really carry it for work, and that's 
I would turn, I would just carry an iPad if it wasn't for the, but anyway, long story short, this is where I'm coming from. So the cell phone is not a thing that I grew up with. And my parents, um, they didn't lose any of their children. <laughs> we all three made it. There were nine in our family and we're all still around. Yeah, every one of them lived. The amazing thing is they didn't kill any of us, despite provocation. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> there were a couple that really deserved it, everyone. But, you know, we made it to adulthood, and we didn't have cell phones. We made it to adulthood, and most of the time we didn't have any kind of phone, or at least half the time we didn't have any kind of phone. We were military brats lived overseas. We didn't have a phone. I mean, just, we didn't. I'm not even saying that it would be better to go back to those good old days because no, frankly either. i carry one too and i'm glad to have it when i'm on a long bike ride and if i have a chain break out in the middle of nowhere i'll be calling salty to come bring the hook instead of i've had to walk five or six miles home before and that wasn't how i wanted to spend my day and especially in cycling shoes so <laughs> i'd be calling I'm, I'm not saying they're a bad thing but Having people who get uncomfortable when they can't use them for every little thing is a prepper problem. And also having people who don't understand that they're owning a phone doesn't mean that I am available to them 24-7. Well, that's not necessarily a prepper problem. That's a that, problem of people who want to get hold of you. No, it's, it is a prepper problem. Because they're used to people being available to them 24-7. Maybe I stated it badly. That's the use that the, these people are always used to being able to call so-and-so for such-and-such. -such. Always people. I just used me as an example. They're assuming instant communication is a given. That's right. And they're assuming it. And if you don't respond to them. They don't have a plan B. Exactly. They don't prepare for if communication isn't available. Like when I set off on that skate, yeah, I had my phone with me. Stuck it in my bag, but it's like, okay, here's what we plan to do. If all else fails, our meeting point is, and we named a spot. Boom, right there, so the, the old bathhouse, boom, right here. somebody comes and tells him the piece of ground where he's sitting is private property and he needs to clear off. And or we don't have cell phone other service. Other drama or occurs. I find out that the the trail is blocked and I can't get to where I thought I was going to be able to get. And we can't meet up where we need to, which has happened before when I'm off on a, a different bike path trail than, than he's on. We expect to meet up at a certain spot and it just can't happen. Oh, I'll just call him and make new plans. Nope, no cell service here. Okay. Well, good thing we both knew that if all else fails, we will meet back again at point X. And we did. And this is exactly what happened on that little on that little excursion. We know we know our, our default situation is if we, so if it all goes crack cracky, just crazy, just crackers. If all if it all goes in the pot, we meet back at the car at the last place that we were both together. That's where we meet, because that's where I'll be with the car. Or that's where she'll be with the car. We know we can both get back there from wherever we've been. 
That's right. And sometimes with trail closures and stuff like that, you really can't. I mean, there's you get to a point and yeah, okay, you expect to pick the, up down the road and the one person can't get through their path. And that happens in, in some of the places we go. You know, you have a cliff on one side and a river on the other side, and that's it. There's no going around it. And that's happened to us many times, so we know what to do. So if the phone is your only backup plan, and instant communication is your only backup plan, you've got a problem if you lose the phones. And in every major, major disaster I've ever heard of, phone service is out at least temporarily because of the volume of people trying to get through. And as a prepper, it's a prepping problem if you solve everything for your kids over the phone. That is a prepping problem. They need to learn how to solve their own problems without calling you because sooner or later they're not going to be able to and what are they going to do? Who here has not felt that cold hard knot of oh no, oh no, oh no, what am I going to do now in the pit of their stomach when something went wrong? Because I've certainly been there. But learning to deal with that is part of learning to cope, and it's part of being able to handle emergency situations. And again, people, we'll go back to the other point I wanted to make about the phone. She made it for me, but people who depend upon an electronic device as their prep are in trouble because I guarantee you it will fail at some time when they need it. It may be nothing more than a dead battery. It doesn't have to be an EMP. It can also be an I slipped and dropped it into the water or other simple mundane dead battery. Dead battery. I brought a charger cord, but it failed to work. There's a million ways contact can be lost. A lot of people don't memorize phone numbers now. Yeah. So if their particular phone becomes unserviceable, all of a sudden they can't reach somebody. Yeah. Um, uh, what's, what's his number? I don't know. I just say Siri dial. It's in my contact list. You know, Siri dial Bob. <laughs> but dial dad. Well, if you don't know his, his actual number, well, you know, how are you going to get a hold of him? So I, for example, have her phone number written down on a card in my wallet. So I I know it. I don't know what her number is to call it right now because that's always, Siri, call Spice's iPhone. And it does. And yes, we both use iPhones. So we are not total curmudgeons. I know I have memory issues. That's also a side effect of some treatments way back when. So I intentionally don't use a lot of those memory aids because I know I need to bring things up in my memory and refresh them often or they're more likely to go away than they ought to be. So I don't look it up. I don't just call Salty when I want to call Salty. I use his number because that way I'll have it when I need it. All righty. So that's those were the points I wanted to make. And so this we're going to do one of those addendum podcasts here in just a minute. So if that satisfies you, if that's all you wanted to know about what our, what our points were, those are the points. We're going to say goodbye to you. But if you do want to learn a little bit more about Pipestone and our thoughts on it, Pipestone National Monument, 
and our thoughts on it. Just hang on until after we say goodbye, and then we'll get a little addendum on Pipestone. Bonus edition on a cool place. <laughs> right, but we're not going to. In gonna, Minnesota. I'm not going to make an extra podcast over it. So if, you, if you're good enough, hey, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you the next time. Bye-bye. And if you're still here, we're going to talk about Pipestone for a bit, which has nothing to do with prepping at all. Whatever. Except if you are in the middle of the prairie and you need somewhere to camp, and it's hot and it's miserable and you're sunbaked, then go to Pipestone, <laughs> which is in the middle of the prairie, and find that creek that uh, runs through Pipestone and comes off follow it up until you get to that lovely waterfall and man i would so camp there okay first of all where is pipestone what are we talking about pipestone national monument is in south dakota it's an extreme no i'm sorry it's in minnesota it's It's barely across the line from south dakota (laughs) sorry it's in in extreme minnesota extremely western minnesota southwest minnesota it's not very far really from sioux falls which is a surprisingly bigger town than you would think it is because it's large sioux falls is the largest town in the state of south dakota not that that's like has 30 percent of the state's population so not that we you know looked that up recently or anything but what is pipestone go ahead and tell them what pipestone is okay it is you take some mud at the bottom of an ocean basin really nice fine silty mud and then you pack on a few million tons of sand so that the heat and the pressure from the overlying sand over time turn this silt into a smooth, soft, extremely carvable uh, solid rock that has a lovely smooth texture and a beautiful red color. And that is pipestone. It's called that because the Native Americans used it to carve pipes because it was soft enough they could carve it into the kind of intricate shapes. It's hard to carve rock into intricate shapes when all you've got is other rocks. And it's a rock that's soft enough to do it. It'll hold its shape well enough. It doesn't shatter to pieces on you. Pipestone. Okay. And pipestone is available only in a very small number of places. Um the Native Americans for centuries would make treks to this location, this quarry, where they would quarry pipestone. And the stone itself is under a whole lot of layers of a different kind of rock. Okay? So you have to break down through... Seriously hard rock. Seriously hard rock. Quartzite, yeah. You have to break down through layer after layer after layer. And if you can imagine... Usually like 12 feet or so. Yeah, if you can imagine how hard that would be when all you have is stone tools, stone and wood tools. Uh, They weren't digging through the quartzite. They were going to the cliffs where the the earthquake Uh, causes a break. And then there's an uplift on one side. So the quartzite cap is protecting the softer pipestone below. But right at the bottom of the cliff, you can find the uh, pipestone exposed and dig it out. That's why they were using that particular area. They had a crack and an uplift. Well, they do now allow quarrying 
Native Americans, and you do have to be a Native American to get get a permit. And apparently, the permits are a pain in the butt, to tricky get. to get. It takes years. It uh, was part of the original treaty with the natives. And interestingly, that they about would the only have part of the access to the pipestone, yeah, about the only part of the original treaty that the U.S. government actually honored. Yeah, they they broke the part about not going to take any more land if you give us this chunk. But they're like, well, okay, we can still honor that part of it, even though we've already sold this land to other people. Uh, we can honor this part of it and let you come get your pipestone. So we'll do that. So yeah, pipestones. It's and I'm not going to go into all the details for the Native American culture. Let's just say it was a it's a big deal to the Native American culture. It's how they make their pipes out of the traditional pipes and the handling of hand, the gift gifting of pipes and. It's a it's a, it's big, a big religious item. It's a religious item. It's a religious sacred site. And right now, it, so they made it into a national monument, and uh, it's really in the middle of nowhere. But it's really cool. There's a whole bunch of these things that that it's are in the middle of the prairie. Yeah, which is in the middle of the prairie in western Minnesota. I mean, the prairie is somewhere. <laughs> it's just a whole whole lot of the same stuff. <gasps> <laughs> and this area is interesting geologically, but there's not a whole lot of people there. So that's what Pipestone National Monument is. Now, my other thing on National Monument, there's national monuments all over the place. And they're really cool, mostly. Yeah. Not every single historical place is <laughs> as interesting I know as... Others. So, Salty, what did you find on our travels that makes you think that not every historical marker is as interesting and valuable as every other historical marker? So we're driving through Sioux, Sioux Falls. I'm going to call it Sioux City. Sioux City is south of there. We're driving through Sioux Falls. We're trying to get over to where the, where the um, Sioux Rapids. Falls. The Falls themselves are. Sioux Falls. Falls Park. Um... So we're driving to get to the falls, because unlike most towns with the name Falls in them, Sioux Falls actually has some in the town. I think Sioux Falls and Niagara Falls are about the only two that I that really actually have falls, but maybe there's more. But anyway, so we're driving through there, and I see this little historical mark just on this residential street. Um, so I like historical markers. We pull over. And Spice reads it to us. And basically, she's like, um, on this spot, Jesse James and his brother Frank um, stopped the stagecoach. Stage they didn't actually rob the stagecoach. Right. They just asked for directions of where the Yankton Trail was. And the coach driver told them, and they turned off and rode south towards the trail. And we're looking at each other like, wait a minute, did they just put up a historical marker for Jesse James asked directions here? <laughs> you know the real reason they put up that historical marker, people? It's because two men traveling by themselves stopped and asked for directions. This is true. This is true. <laughs> so, yeah, the whole Jesse yeah, James Jesse James thing. asked for directions here. Oh, my gosh. We've seen some Jesse James sites. Well, they had one spot where they claimed Jesse James jumped his horse over this entire uh, gulch. That was in, in uh, up in uh, uh, Palisades. 
north of Palisades. Yeah, in the area of Palisades. And uh, what was the name of that town? Devil well, Gulch. Yeah, uh, Devil's Garretson. Gulch. Garretson. Garretson. And South Dakota. So we, we're there, and we're looking at this thing. And if you've ever ridden a horse, and you've ever jumped a horse, or had a hump, especially horse a metal shod it, horse, a shod horse, the and sur- you're looking at these slippery rocks on both sides of this massive jump, smooth quartzite at the beginning and end of the massive jump. And if you overshoot it, you go down a cliff. And if the horse slips, you go down a fifty-foot cliff into a river below. So, could a horse jump that far? Yeah, horses can jump that far. Would anybody with two brain cells together attempt to jump a horse that far with that kind of landing and takeoff? Oh, no. <laughs> no. So, but it's, that's their claim to fame. We've got, so, there's so many Jesse James stories in this part of the country. Because this is Jesse James' part of the country. It just is. We have the James brothers were from Missouri. But some of the stupidity of... Jesse James did this here. Um, there's a cave that... that uh, he slept in every cave he, in Yeah, every single Missouri. cave in Missouri. <laughs> but there's a cave, that, the Mark Twain cave, claimed that the, he uh, had a hideout underneath. He had to dive through this pool and underneath. And, and uh, there's this room on the other side of the pool where they... Uh, man, I don't know if any of these people have ever tried to... When his only light was a flame, yeah. he just randomly decided to, oh, I'm going to hold my breath and swim underwater up this underground river through a tunnel and expect that it's somehow going to come out into this airspace where I can hide out, although it'll be completely black and I won't be able to light anything because everything's completely wet. 53 degree. Water. Water. Yeah. I don't know if you ever jumped into 50, actually maybe 56 there. I don't know if you ever jumped into 56 degree water. If if not, hello. <laughs> yeah, Wake you right up. Not something you'd really, you know, I've never looked at a pool of water in a cave and said, oh, wow, you know, I think I'm going to just jump in there without any type of equipment, whatever, and feel my way to the back of that puddle. <laughs> Well, to be fair, you're a cavern diver. You take your scuba gear. <laughs> but it's scary and dangerous enough, even when you've got that kind of stuff. If Jesse James did half the stuff that was ascribed to him in these <laughs> stories, he would have had to have not only been the luckiest, but the stupidest human being on the planet to try that stuff. Yeah. I mean, Jesse James would he have had... Pipestone. He would have had to have lived to be 145 years old to have enough nights <laughs> to sleep in all these caves to sleep in every single one of these caves and, he supposedly slept how in how many stages would he have had to have robbed to have enough treasure to bury some in all oh these places oh my gosh because every single one of these caves has Jesse James treasure in it Pipestone however cool place yeah and there's no evidence that Jesse James was ever at Pipestone I was disappointed though they had a this way to the carvings so they have some steps cut into the cliff. You climb up the steps in the cliff. You go around. I didn't regret the uh, hike at all because it was totally beautiful and cool up there. But when I got to the carvings, it was, oh, yeah, the first guy from the U.S. Geological Service who brought a team to this spot carved his name and his uh, workers cars carved their initials in the rock. Uh. So it's not like, Native pictographs or 
some archaeological memento detailing the previous uses or significance of the site, nah. It's if it had been done in the last 50 years, we'd call it vandalism. <laughs> Just some guys saying, hey, we were here in this year. Yeah, it wasn't no petroglyphs. It was a U.S. Geological Survey guy. There were petroglyphs up there somewhere. Somewhere, I didn't yeah. happen to see them. Now, some of the petroglyphs make sense. Like, there's a petroglyph on the Katy Trail that makes a lot of sense. It kind of looks like a Nike swipe, swoop. But what it is, basically, is, and they've been able to interpret it, is... Simple for sweet water. Good water below the, yeah. the, the things It's right up along over the, the river, but if you've ever seen the Missouri River, it's kind of one of those too thick to drink, too thin to plow rivers. It's very muddy. But there is a spring coming out of the rock face, and the natives marked the cliff so that if you were coming up on a canoe, you could see the the mark on the cliff in, in red. It looks kind of like a Nike swoop that says clean water. You could uh, pull in and get yourself some nice water from that uh, spring, which runs in all seasons. Which is kind of cool. Yeah. So anyway, that's, that's Pipestone. And uh, definitely check it out if you're in the neighborhood. Uh, you probably just pretty much need to be going to uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota to be in the neighborhood. But if you go, there's stuff to see there. We've found that about almost anywhere you go. Salty can find cool stuff to see there. All right. So we'll talk to you later. Bye.